Welcome to the 5 Minute Mom Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, we got another special one in terms of uh, great career legendary editors, Tim Squires. Tim has edited for um, Stephen Gagain, um, Robert Altman, and he's edited with the exception of one film, every film of Ang Lee's, every feature of Ang Lee's. Um, but of note, he also did two films for Jonathan Demi, including the movie we're discussing today, a movie that is really dear to my heart, include to the extent where hopefully we make the case for it, just because I know some people, friends, don't understand why I love this movie as much. Jonathan Demi's Rachel Getting Married. Uh, but first up, what I watched this week, I've been diving into the Criterion Channel's Neil Noir series, which I ignored for way too long because some of the titles on there, I'd or most of the titles there I'd already seen, but ignoring the fact that the ones I hadn't seen were very worthwhile. The coolest thing I saw this week was directed by Barry Shear across 110th Street, which Barry Shear is a, is a white filmmaker and he made this uh, AIP kind of batshit movie that I'm very... I don't want to say I'm fond of it. I find it interesting. Wild in the Streets about a youth uprising. And the most notable thing about this movie, besides it stars Anthony Quinn and Yafet Kodo, and probably the MVP performance in this is Anthony Franchioso, who's kind of the villain gangster in this and just kind of runs away with the movie. But what's also notable about this is it was shot on in on location in Harlem, uh, as the title indicates, above 110th Street. And it shot on these RE cameras that were very tiny and lightweight, uh, that were very new at the time. So the location work in this movie is striking and just very intimate. You know, it proceeds... Chinatown always had that reputation of being... of a movie that got into rooms very tightly and being very intimate. This movie does that, too. Um, on top of the fact, this movie just race relations in this movie are very uh modern and uh probably ahead of its time and yet the movie doesn't pull punches when especially by the time it gets to the end i still have a big chunk of uh, new noir still on the list to look through i mean i just started my first robert mitchum uh raymond chandler uh, adaptation of those 70s ones which are i'll probably have something to say about those when i've seen a few more next week um uh, interesting but most people know across 110th street for uh the title bobby womack song which is the um from last week's episode on tarantino it's the uh in uh final song of the movie of jackie brown used to speaking of intimacy one of the most intimate moments in any of his films so um, this one, this is a long, great talk. Uh, the first half of it is much like the Billy Weber episode. The first half of this goes into Tim's career. Like we get half more than halfway through the episode before we actually even get to Rachel getting married. And as I mentioned, he's worked with Ang Lee's entire life. And one of the, this gets, this conversation gets very tech heavy. And one of the interesting parts of it is being someone who's worked in the high frame rate with both uh, Billy Lynn's halftime song and Gemini Man, he we go we go into the weeds on the high frame rate and and Tim's very honest about uh, its benefits, why it maybe didn't work, and what his future lies. And 
and he, he does sound optimistic about it on that regard but this is um i'm really excited we got him anyway onward with tim Squires. So, um, what were movies like for you as a kid? Well, uh, I always watched, you know, I was always a big movie watcher on TV. And then later on, you know, when I was in high school, I would go to the movies by myself a lot because I couldn't get talk my friends into going to see all the movies that I wanted to see. Um, in fact, once I, you know, back then, you in order to find out the movie times, you had to call the theater and listen to a, a recording playback. And once when I was a senior in high school, I, uh, in gym class, I got a concussion and they, you know, they took me to the nurse's office and asked for my, my mother's phone number at work. And the number I gave them was the number from a movie theater that I hadn't called in probably two years. <laughs> That's just the number that bubbled up in my head. Um, my, my scrambled head. Cause it was so familiar to you. Yeah, oh man. Yeah. I, I worked at a movie theater as, as a teenager, but I still to this day have that movie theater's number memorized for wow. having a call for. Yeah. 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 Like, what were the movies you were watching? Um, one of the big ones I remember going to see that, that really blew me away was Days of Heaven. Huh. Which uh, I could not get, I could not convince any of my friends to go see this weird movie. So, uh, you know, I rode my bike down to Glassboro and, and, um, and went and saw it and just, was in a daze going all, all the way going home because it's such a astounding movie and um i you know i convinced some of my friends to see it and they said oh that was kind of weird um <laughs> but uh and i actually recently i got i i uh my daughters watched it i told them i told them they had to watch it and they uh they did appreciate it properly they did they did take to it right i have a similar experience not, oh yeah they loved it not to date everything i have a similar experience with thin red line oh Okay. So, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's amazing a movie like that. W were you getting a lot of um, movies like that? Were you like into the seventies? Like what? The I mean, the platform releasing process was starting to, or the um, um, was starting to go away, I guess, and everyone was starting to throw the major releases. So, were you still getting? I mean, Days of Heaven was a big Paramount release, wasn't it? Or yeah. something that oh, yeah. would have gone to a yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't an obscure little art house movie. It, it was. You know, it was the where I saw it was a little, you know, multiplex in a shopping mall. It wasn't, it wasn't a little art house theater. I, I, I guess it blows my mind. You're watching Days of Heaven in a shopping mall. Um, what, <laughs> what were some other movies you were seeing around this time? Uh, let's see. Well, I, you know, my more interesting movie watching experience was after I went to college. Okay. Um, Where'd you go to college? I went to Cornell. Okay. And, um, you know, I was not planning on going into film at all. If you were planning on going into film at that time, you wouldn't go to Cornell. But Cornell had a very <laughs> robust movie screen program. And, you know, we showed, uh, they showed uh, probably 400 titles a year because this was before Netflix. So if you wanted to see movies, that's how you had to do it. And uh, so over time, I, w I was seeing so many movies, I figured, well, I should get on the board that picks the movies. So I did. And uh, was was seeing you know 100 150 movies a year uh, for for quite a while, and um, so yeah that that's when I really discovered you know Robert Altman and all those 
all of the, you know, Fellini, Antonioni, all the, the big foreign, foreign directors, uh, which I really didn't, wasn't aware of before I went to college, but I saw, I saw everything. Um, okay. And I would, you know, you would kind of schedule, once I was on the board picking the movies, you kind of make series out of things. And so I would just look through the catalog and find out movies that I wanted to see and then find some way that I could make a series out of them. Um, and uh, so I, I wound up being able to just kind of pick what old movies I wanted to watch and be able to, to actually schedule them. Do you remember any of the series that you, that you put oh. on? Oh, no, no, I'm afraid I don't. I think one of my, my, my comment or my, my frequent co-host Ted Haycraft, uh, I think he's similar age point and he would also at this very same time, cause he, he would mention days of heaven as a movie that he, he was, he was going to college at the exact same time. And he was talking about that the ability to program a campus, uh, what movies were coming in was he's, I mean, he generationally, he's always jealous of us, someone like me younger who had BHS and then everyone else who had streaming beyond that, who could like, yeah choose what they watch and saw and whereas he was talking about stories about pilfering friends hbo and taping stuff off that or using a catalog while you're programming a uh programming candidate but so when did yeah. um so i assume how did when did editing start to come into into play or when did you start thinking about editing well while i was in college um you know I, at one point i was starting to question whether i really wanted to be a physics major and I took a, I'd always been interested in film, but I'd never thought about it as a thing to actually do. And then uh, I took a filmmaking course, a beginning filmmaking course. And all, all there was at Cornell was beginning and intermediate filmmaking. That was that was the entire curriculum. What does that entail at Cornell? Uh, at that time, we had a couple of Bolexes and a, a bunch of wind-up Bell and & Howells and some simple recording equipment and some very simple lights. And that's about it. And so it was mostly experimental films. People weren't weren't really shooting, you know, shooting narratives because just the, the our sound capabilities weren't weren't conducive to that. So uh, I took beginning class, and then uh, I became I was the teaching assistant for several years. And so as a teaching assistant, and I worked for the university. They had a, a division where they produced. Um, produced educational films for New York State and a bunch of other things. And I was a I was a director and a camera operator at the public access station downtown and just kind of did everything you could do in Ithaca um, in film. But I was mostly kind of directing and doing camera. Okay. But as a as a teaching assistant, all your students go out and they shoot a bunch of stuff and then they come back and go, what am I going to do with this? And so I would wind up helping them in the editing room more than anywhere else. Uh, and so I sort of, you know, had a hand in editing dozens and dozens of films uh, of, of these students that went through. And then when I came to New York, uh, uh, one of my friends was going to film school at NYU. And I, I did sound for a bunch of people's films at NYU. I wasn't enrolled but I did sound for people and yeah. then I cut my friend's film and then I cut several other people's films. And then just coincidentally, uh, some of the people that I met, you know, through weird connections were editors after I came to New York. And so some of the, you know, I was doing anything I could. And so I did a bunch of different jobs, but 
including that was editorial stuff. And I kind of quickly realized that I liked that job better. You know, I, the one of the great things about editing is you're, it's one of the very few jobs on a movie where you're involved in the whole thing, you know, where you're telling the whole story. You're not doing your piece and handing it off. And also my piece as editor is last. You know, nobody can fix my mistakes. Nobody can mess up what I've done. It's just, you know, we're, we're finishing telling the story. So, you know, for that, for those creative reasons, and also, you know, I did a lot of uh, boom operating and other kinds of things that, that had me on set. And, you know, it's cold, you're outside freezing, you're, the last, the last day of boom operating I did uh, was in it, the, the film was, it was called Anna, with, uh, Sally Kirkland actually got a Best Actress nomination for it. Okay. I was boom, I was a substitute boom operator for a, for a day. And it was in a theater, it was like a during an audition scene in a, in a big, in a Broadway theater. And so they were, they were shooting a lot of wide shots. So I'm walking up and down on, on Apple boxes with the, this boom extended out to 20 feet um, all day. And at the end of the day, you know, you just, you're just dead uh, after that. And um, oddly enough, I wound up as supervising sound editor on that same movie, pure coincidence. Okay. Um, but uh, every now and then I would just slam my headphones down and say, who boomed this crap? I've had this happen before director. Sometimes when you're wanting to like cut something or like um, point out, like it, you're just like, this isn't working. One of their excuses is you weren't there that day. You don't know how cold it was. Yeah. You don't yeah. know how muddy or wet it was. Yeah. We always say uh, it got really crazy out there. Whenever you get the dailies and go, what the hell were they doing? And then they turn around and like, you're in an air conditioned uh, editing room talking about this. Yeah. And you go, yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, sometimes, you know, you're, <clears throat> when you're shooting out in the real world, sometimes there are, you're limited by uh, a lot of things. And sometimes that shows in the footage that they just couldn't get what they would have gotten if, it, if they'd had control over everything. So um, w from, you were supervising sound editor on Anna and was from there, you're just kind of staying in post. And a couple others too. You stayed in post from that point. Yeah. I mean, the first, uh, the first thing I did was uh, I was assistant picture assistant on a feature, but it was such a low budget feature and you've never heard of it. Um, there were only two of us. It was just me and the editor. And so okay. even though I had never touched 35 before 35 millimeter film before uh, on that film, I wound up, um, editing, let's see. Uh, yeah, I I was sound editor. I cut all the production tracks, and uh, the ADR and the uh, the editor cut all the effects and music. And then, and so you know that was the first film I ever worked on. And then there were a couple of films where that with that same editor, a guy named John Tintori, he um, I was assistant editor and then supervising sound editor. So I was kind of going back and forth between uh, picture and sound. And then I was doing a lot of other kind of TV stuff too. Well, that sounds like that helps you, especially for the movie we're going to talk about, but also things like I'm, I'm going to pick your brain about your Altman work. Like it seems like fixing sound on a shoot that's like shot kind of run and gun like this, like would be something that would be kind of instrumental in figuring those things out. Yeah. I mean, as a, I mean, they call the job picture editor, but you're really doing 
sound editing too. I mean, the, you know, you have to, you take it up to a certain point. Um, and then the sure. sound editors take it, take it the rest of the way. It's, you know, that's always a tricky thing when you're editing is how good do I want to make the sound? Um, yeah. I want to make it as good as I can, but at the same time, if I'm out to 40 tracks and I want to trim picture, it's a big pain in the neck. So you have to kind of know where to, where to draw the line. But, you know, years ago, um, editing on film, for example, when you were screening, you know, you're running off two tracks of mag. Um, and that was all you could do. And everything was mono. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as Avid, as you, people switched to digital editing and as the digital editing got more capable, um, people have come to, you know, it, you can do more. And then as you do more, people expect more to the point where now, you know, you have to make some, you have to make something sound really good if you want to show it to a studio or to an audience, especially to a studio, because they just don't know how to watch things that aren't, that don't sound like a movie. So, um, you know, I've, I've now, I now edit in 5.1 audio and do a proper mix, you know, Again, you have to know where to draw the line because you have to, you know, I want to leave something for the sound editors, but also they have expertise that I, you know, that goes beyond mine and I, I, I want to use their stuff. But at the same time, sound is really important. Sound's a very important part of how the, how the audience experiences the movie. And if sitting in the editing room, I'm not experiencing it in some sort of reasonable simulation of that, I'm not actually watching the movie. So yeah, sound is is very important. Well, the the crazier thing I always find having to explain to somebody about going into a deep dive on sound is that sometimes, you, you know, you mentioned earlier about being a picture editor, the sound editing you do guides the eye across a frame. Oh yeah, of, of a certain yeah, way, very much. Like, but then at the same time, it's also hearing you talk about I I I was I never had to work on thirty five. I was always on digital, but um, it's it's just it's time management. Time management is always like another big thing in editing where you're like, you can do this deep dive into something that's ultimately going to be changed and doesn't matter too, or just like, isn't working, but you think one little detail, one little frame to the difference is going to make this work. And you just keep pushing and pushing and you shouldn't have spent this time on it. Yeah. Yeah. One, you know, one interesting thing I found is I used to work in stereo uh, I mean, I used to work in direct out, then I switched to stereo because it gave you a lot more freedom. And now I work in 5.1. But back when I was working in stereo uh, or in direct out, either way, just working with two speakers or three, I would always tell the director, because sometimes it'd be hard to hear something. And I'd tell the director, oh, once we're in 7.1 and if this can all spread out, it, it'll be okay. But I never mm -hmm. knew if I was lying or not. <laughs> um, Fair enough. So that's that's one of the reasons once we had a really good room, because uh, for Life of Pi, we build a room. And I've, I've cut a bunch of features there, a good 7-1 room. Now I know if I'm lying or not. You know, Now I know <laughs> if there's a, a real issue. Um, Was that your first 7-1 movie? I've never done a 7-1 movie. Yeah, I mean, to edit in 7-1, yeah. Because no. uh, we, we I actually, we cut Life of Pi. Actually, no. No, my first 5-1 movie to cut might have been um, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Wow. To, okay. to, to work that way the whole time. Um, I cut in 5.1 and we had the, for complicated technical reasons, I stayed in LCR on Life of Pi. 
Is that very uh, assistant intensive where you're having them do some of the separations and? Well, uh, I mean, to, to mix it, no, it kind of has to be in my room because okay. I'm, I'm the one with the big, the, the big set setup. But for like, for a film like Rachel getting married or Gosford park where everybody's wearing a microphone, you know, the way they, the way they give audio to me is the person on set, the sound mixer on set does a mix track and that's channel one. But then I have everybody's solo mic, everybody's wearing a mic and I've got all those. Right. So I initially cut with the mix track, but then kind of once pictures farther along, I'd have my assistants go back and listen to all the isolated tracks and, you know, find me all the good stuff there too. And then kind of figure out, you know, what of those I want to use. And you're, if you don't see the person, you don't have to use them in sync. So you can slide them around and drop them in uh, wherever it's useful. Uh, so that's where, you know, my assistants would really spend a bunch of time going through every track uh, on a film like that. So you mentioned Angley. Angley, um, uh, Pushing Hands was your first feature? Yeah. And it was, he directed? Yes. That was his first feature, my second what was your first one? My first one, you've never seen this one either. It's called Blowback. Um, okay. But Blowback, the uh, first assistant editor, or the uh, the first AD was Ted Hope. Ted then joined up with James Seamus. They formed Good Machine, and that Good Machine is the company that okay. uh, financed, or they didn't finance, they produced uh, Ang's first bunch of movies. And uh, you know they were looking for an editor. It would have helped if they had found one who spoke Mandarin, but they couldn't, and I didn't. Um, uh, but Ted said, "Oh, I I know somebody who worked for cheap," and they called me. Oh, the 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 great calling card of working for cheap. Um, <laughs> yeah, Ted Hope. Um, I I mean, uh, have you ever read his book, uh, Hope on Film? No, I haven't. It's I should. I, I'm a big. I'm a big fan of it. There's a lot. And the thing is, it's, it's like a few years old, like an updated version of it is like picking that guy's brain. That sounds like he, he always seems like he's on the edge of like, what is going to make film work as a medium and constantly, you know, like, especially after COVID year, like I would want to hear more what he has to think right now. But, um, so what was the first, um, what was pushing hands? Like, what was that? The first, your second feature, what was that experience? Like, uh, pushing hands, you know, that was, I mean, first I had to work with a new director. So you have to figure out what your relationship is going to be. We we're cutting on film. Uh, this was in 1991. And that was quick. I mean, it was a very, I think, an 18-day shoot. And we did the whole thing in four or five months. Uh, okay. So it was quick. But but Ang, Ang had never worked with an editor before. His, you know, before that, when he was in NYU, he had done... Um, he had done student films, but he hadn't, uh, he had never worked with an editor before. So he didn't know how to work, work with somebody, let alone in a language that was not his first language. And that at the time he wasn't terribly strong with. Um, so it was very kind of roundabout. He would, you know, I'd say, I'd say, so should we trim, you know, we should trim this little, these 16 frames and get that little look off. And then we would talk for 10 minutes about, you know, old stories and cooking, 
cooking stories and Chinese legends and things. And then, it, you know, after 15 minutes, I'd say, okay, so what about these 16 frames? You know, that we would just, there was this kind of very roundabout way uh, that I, I could do something and then get his response to it. But it was, you know, it was a fairly straightforward movie. Um, but it was, you know, it's interesting, those kinds of films, there are a lot of complicated problems that have to be solved on a, a film that's shot quickly like that. Um, so, you know, I was just, just happy to be cutting a movie. Now it didn't, it was a, you know, a mostly foreign language film. It's about half and half, um, right. half English, half Mandarin. And so I had to figure out how to do that, how to cut in a language I didn't speak, which I've now done a bunch of times. Um, and, but it was for a foreign audience. It was with foreign money for a foreign audience. There were no American studios or anything like that to 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 satisfy. We would just whenever we said we were done, we were done. And um, you know, it was a big hit in Taiwan, but it was it wasn't released here until years later. It got a very tiny little art house release in 1995, I think. Um, this would have been around time of Sense and Sensibility, I guess. Yeah, I think while we were shooting Sense and Sensibility, it ran at the quad for a couple of weeks or something like that. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, so it felt like a hobby. It kind of didn't feel like we were making a real movie. And then with the wedding banquet, it felt like the same. And then it won the grand prize at Berlin, which I, I was so confused because that that's what real movies do. I didn't realize we were a real movie. I don't know um, if it's interesting. We cut uh, the wedding banquet in 1992 on an Avid, which is one of the very first movies ever cut on an Avid. I don't know if your audience would be interested in that. Film, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, how many movies did you cut on film then? Just two. Uh, okay. Just blowback and pushing hands. Because then we did in uh, in 1992, we did the wedding banquet on an Avid and entirely on an Avid. It wasn't some kind of hybrid system. The first film I ever saw was an answer print, which is terrifying because at that time, <laughs> the way that you know, you know, I was working from three quarter inch beta tapes that we loaded uh, in, in the Avid and the transfers weren't very good. so I couldn't, I didn't really know what the movie looked like until answer print. And it was, it was a little bit shocking um, because there are things that, that we could see that we hadn't been able to see before. Um, and we only had seven and a half gigabytes of storage. For the entire movie which wow isn't because they were you know the, the drives were huge and really expensive so my assistant uh pam martin who's now an academy nominee herself um she uh you know one of her jobs was to make sure that i had that whatever i was going to be working on the next day was loaded in the avid because we couldn't keep everything on so it was complicated cutting a film on the avid but the great thing about it was Whereas on Pushing Hands, Ang and I had to talk a lot before making a decision because, you know, you have to, on, when you're doing it on film, you're doing it destructively and it's time consuming. On the Avid, if I wasn't sure about something, I would just do it and show it to him. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't good, I'd just, just undo it. We could, we could work so much faster because we didn't have to go and, and talk and talk and talk through everything. And the, you know, the great thing that I discovered about working digitally is, you know, you used to, if the director had an idea and you thought it was a bad idea, you'd have to talk about it. 
you know, you'd have to, because <clears throat> I know it's going to be a mess, and then I got to put everything back together, and uh, it's a big deal. And on the Avid, just make a copy and do it. And sometimes I find out, you know, sometimes the director sees, oh yeah, that's not going to work, but it gives us a new idea. Or sometimes I find out I'm not as smart as I thought I was, and that actually is a good idea. And yeah. so you can, you know, you can. It still takes. It's not like it's sped up post production a lot, but you get to try a lot more things. Well, and, trying and, and thus be a lot more confident. Out, yeah. But you know, I had before then I had cut a lot on tape, um, which is linear editing and I cut a lot on film which is non-linear editing so I would approach each edit either with one mindset or the other and then over time you kind of learn oh no there's you don't have to conceptualize it this way or that way it's there's a whole new thing available and so you know the editing it's what you're doing with your hands and in the software but also how you're thinking about what you're doing and you need to develop that now everybody today learns that way but all of us old timers who had to make the transition um you know you had to go through this process of rethinking relearning how you how to do the things you do uh, so it was, it was interesting and at that time in 1992 you know <clears throat> we had the manual uh, I, I read the editor's manual pam read the assistant's manual and then i started working and after a couple of weeks we traded manuals and then we read them again but um you know, there was nobody to ask questions of. I mean, we were we were kind of inventing the whole process. Uh, Whenever I've to... worked with um, old editors, one of the things we, we I've I've had conversations with other newer editors about it. Just the fact that it's been pointed out the talking, like the the the, the longer the talking to think about before doing something, especially even after we switched over to digital. But I've also heard, and it makes a lot of sense that even though I haven't really experienced any old the way of doing it, that it still doesn't take much more or less time just because now with Avid, when you try more stuff, that picks up the time that used to be for technical stuff and talking stuff through. Yeah, I mean, you still talk things through, but you get to talk them through after you've done it. So you get to, right. you, you can base your opinions on having actually tried it and seen it, not imagining it. Uh, so that is often... Uh, and often you don't have to talk about it because you look out and go, oh, that didn't work. Uh, it seemed like it was going to work, but it didn't work. Um, so, yeah, it just it changes the whole it changes the discussion. But, you know, what I like is being able to do things based on having actually tried it, making right, decisions right. based on, you know, here's here's what it is. You know, like here's this scene uh, cut in the close ups. I know you wanted it in the close-ups. Here it is in the close-ups. I think it works better in the medium shots, and here's that. So, but you know, I don't have to cut the scene in the medium shots and then have them say, "Oh, I wanted to see it in the close-ups," and say, "Yeah, I tried that. It didn't work." You know, um, I, I can say, "Here it is." How many people, when you started on Avid, were had been working on Avid? I know of. Uh, I, mean, I think zero. I know I mean, of like for features. Uh, uh, the Sex Lives videotape book talks about Soderbergh doing, uh, I think it's an early version of Avid, or he's doing some kind of... It um, wasn't, yeah, Avid wasn't, wasn't, Avid wasn't around then. I mean, Sex Lives and Videotape was in 1989, Yeah, yeah, so I'm not sure what he was working on, but, okay. you know, there was the, the montage system uh, with, um, you know, the maybe what I'm thinking of. 30, 30 tape decks. Uh, somebody was using that at Sound One while we were doing uh, Dogfight, I think. Or true love, no dogfight. So yeah, there were other systems besides Avid. When you say tape, like, 
I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble visualizing this. Like you, 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 like you had a certain amount of tape decks that the, the computer clips then can only access or like how, how does like, well, you mean the montage system? Or, or I mean, early Avid with the oh, with, early with... Avid. You, yeah. You had, you know, you, it's, it worked the same as, as it does now, except rather than everything being file based, you didn't get your, you got your dailies on tape and you would have to go through and, you know, and you, you would get uh, a file with it that told you what was on the tape. Um, and you would digitize from the tape in real time. And so then you could always, you know, because we only had seven and a half gigabytes, we could delete stuff, you know, to free up space for something else. And then when we wanted it back, we have to load the tapes again and mm, reload okay. all those tapes in real time. So the, uh, the, the, you know, the tapes all lived over on the shelves. And so you had access to all your media there. What one thing, great thing that it could do is you could hook up two decks and uh, when you had a cut that you wanted to screen rather than, you know, we didn't have film. So rather than screen an Avid output, um, it would conform your, it would auto conform your tapes. You would just feed huh. it tapes and it would build uh, in a linear fashion. It would build on a, a source tape cuts only. It would build your cut. And so we'd screen it that way. So I, I, we would get to screen it at, you know, uh, SD resolution but that was much better than what was in the habit at the time. So how much, how consistently were you working around this time for over these years? Oh, very, very. Uh, I was doing a lot of things besides features. Okay. Um, I was doing this, you know, things for VH1 and low budget commercials and industrials and all kinds of things. So I worked, I was working very steadily, but. Um, this was your feature stuff though. Yeah. Right. I mean, right before, pushing hands i there was a film called dogfight that nancy savoka directed uh that john tintori edited uh it's river phoenix and lily taylor and that's another one where i was picture assistant and supervising sound editor so okay. um that's what i did that that was the job and then i did a couple little things and then i did uh, pushing hands next so you you've stayed with ang lee his entire career i've done all but one what was the just one? I didn't do I didn't do Brokeback Mountain. Oh, okay. And that was a scheduling a scheduling issue. I um, I he told me after we finished Hulk, he told me he was going to take a year off. Uh huh. And um, I I signed on to Syriana, and then and then Brokeback Mountain came together real quickly, and I thought, oh no. And then I read the script and said, oh, no, because it's a great <laughs> script. It was a really great script. And he and I talked a lot. And it looked like Syriana was going to be a, you know, it was much more of a big studio film and looked a lot more commercial and was far more complicated from an editorial standpoint than, you know, that was intercutting between five different stories. And uh, Brokeback Mountain was very straightforward. And ultimately, we decided you know, it would have been kind of bad if I had bailed out on Syriana. So ultimately, we decided that I should go see, I should do Syriana. And, um, and, and you know, so he did uh, broke back without me. So this the podcast idea here is that like a lot of, I pick a lot of favorite movies that I don't think other people appreciate enough. Yeah. And when I was going through your resume, there were three movies that stood out. There was this one we're doing, Rachel Getting Married. There was Syriana and Hulk. Uh, 
like Hulk is a just like frustratingly underappreciated movie. Hulk was an interesting one. Well, just the editing alone, like the split screen, the, the yeah, the amount of work that went into it. Yeah, Hulk. You know, Hulk has some problems. Um, sure, but from an editorial standpoint, you know, Ang was very interested in the. You know, we looked at a lot of graphic novels, and there's some you know some great graphic novels around Hulk and around a lot of other comics. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to be take inspiration from that. You know, that was before Marvel had this formula that they have now. Very successful formula, right. but this right. was before that existed. This is we started shooting Hulk in January of or no, March of 2002. So um so we did some tests. The film that he shot before that was called Ride with the Devil, which you should see, especially if you get a chance to see it, watch the Criterion version, not the theatrical version. I was just going to say there's a Criterion version of it. Yeah, The Criterion version is better. Yeah, we fixed a couple of mistakes. Okay. okay. Um, and the, uh, so we did some tests, you know, some kind of tests with footage from that with split screens and things. But, you know, the way you experience a graphic novel is completely different from the way you experience a movie. You know, you look at the, you turn the page, you you take in the graphic design of the page, but then you still read the panels or however it's, it's you, you read it sequentially. A movie, you know, you're not in charge of how things are presented to you in time. That's that's what we do. So we did some tests and then I went away. Uh, I went and spent a couple months in London finishing um, Gosford Park. And while I was there, I, I thought a lot about it and came up with some ideas. And then um, I actually started two months before we started shooting on Hulk uh, and hired some actors. And we went out and shot about 30 scenes from the movie. And then I just acquired a whole bunch of other footage from biology documentaries and animations and things and just played for a couple months and came up with what I thought was going to be sort of the language of the film. Did you, did you read any of, uh, um, like, uh, Will Eisner or Scott McCloud stuff when figuring this no. out? Oh, Will Eisner. Yeah. 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 Oh yes. The... Of course. I read both of them. Okay. Yeah. Understanding comics is one of those things I read yeah, as a kid. The, the Scott, Mc... Scott McCloud. Yeah. I love that book. Yeah. Um, so then when they started shooting, you know, Ang told me anything you can think of. You know, hey, if it's too much, we'll dial it back, but anything you can think of. And, you know, I was trying to, so, you know, the film was assembled right from the first day I got the footage, I was doing that stuff, that combining things. And it's not simply split screens. It's a lot more complicated stuff than that. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, I kind of thought early on I would keep two versions of the film, one with all that stuff and then one that's just straight cutting. But I quickly had to abandon the straight cutting one because it just wasn't going to happen. You know, I couldn't do both. And, you know, there are scenes like there's right near the beginning of the movie, there's a scene where they're doing an experiment on a frog, you know, you know they're exposing it to gamma radiation. And, and, you know, you think about the scene it's a bunch of people sitting in a room watching stuff on computer monitors. It's the most boring thing you can imagine, even if what's happening on the screens is vaguely interesting. And if I hadn't been able to, to be flying things in and out and swooshing them around, that scene would have been almost unwatchable. Um, but in this case, because I could do that, it sort of, it sort of goes by as a fun scene, 
even though if you think about it, it's kind of dull. Uh, sure. So, so yeah, that one, you know, and none of that with the except in that one scene, there was one snap zoom, a, a zoom back from the frog from, you know, back to the uh, high point in the back of the room that was planned on set. That's the only thing that was planned on set. Everything else that's in that movie is stuff that we cooked up in post. I got to tell you, it's really heartening to know that because especially you mentioning time, like the, like we do a lot of comic book shows on here too and comic book related yeah. stuff. And like, um, and a lot of the theory behind the differences between movies and comics is a really pedestrian way of looking at where, especially early on before this comic revolution or of movies, more comic book movies, people were treating comics as storyboards and like the more people, more theoreticians like Scott McCloud or Will Eisner would talk about the differences wait, like in a Tarkovsky esque way of like the differences between time and film versus the time and comics. And, and I remember feeling that when watching Hulk and trying to like tell my friends like there's way more to this movie and I'm it's just really heartening to know that like that was in the thought process and that was part of the thinking going and how the montage came together on that yeah it was you know once you start getting into that you know realize that you've got a whole new aesthetic that's available to you uh in terms of how to get from one shot to the other to the next um you know you just start trying things and you get ideas and you know you just try messing around with things and we've done that a little bit, you know, there were some fancy things in uh, Life of Pi um, that, mm. that kind of came from that. Uh, and some of those were planned and some were not. Actually, the ones that were planned, it was my job to plan them. So, again, I <laughs> shot I shot the scenes with with other actors and went back and, and planned everything out about here's how we're going to do these transitions. Um, but, yeah, that, um, you know, it was it was by the end, you know, I kind of felt initially it was just trying whatever came into our heads uh me and my assistant who then became visual effects editor gary levy um you know there's one place where there's a there's a, a plant it's sort of a sort of an aloe plant with all these spiky things and i i told him you know see these spiky things to that's on the incoming shot there's a there's the outgoing shot is something else and i want to cut to this shot but instead of cutting we want to animate this thing in. So see these spikes, animate these couple points out. And so he did like four of them. And I said, okay, that's great. Now do twice as many. And then he went back and did it. And then it, eventually, you know, we had a whole bunch of them. Uh, and it looks, you know, it looks great. And it's just kind of whatever came into our heads. And then, uh, you know, over time, you kind of realize, oh, this is actually sort of a coherent aesthetic. Because then, you know, to execute these things requires, um, you know, ILM has to, ILM was our visual effects vendor on that. And they had to uh, actually execute all these things at high res. And they, you know, and I encouraged them to be creative. But when they were, often just the things they did were, they were somehow, they felt outside of the aesthetic. And that's when I realized, oh, this actually is sort of a coherent, aesthetic and it was largely defined by what was in the avid effects palette at that time um what, what kind of stuff but, were they trying to do like like 3ding out stuff or just like um... yeah it was some 3d stuff and we did some 3d stuff uh, i mean there's one place where uh we actually scan across a whole bunch of comic book panels and the first time we do it 
um, we're on a shot and then we just move down diagonally and go across and you see some other rectangles, you know, kind of going through and then we land on another one. The second time the camera, it's like the camera's looking down on a page of comic books. Initially it's just a shot, but instead of just sliding, it went up, it pulled up and then slid and then went down again. You could feel that it was a 3D thing. And anyway, you couldn't do that in Media Composer at the time. We had to do build that in After mm. Effects. And then the third time, um, the camera pulls up and then tilts. And so you can see this whole plane of these images. And then we moved and went in on, on another one. So it's just kind of taking the concept and advancing it a little bit each time. Um, I, but it's hard to, you know, it's hard to kind of describe what what the what the aesthetic was but you know it, we learned a new way of editing that they'll probably never use again that's it, the they, disappointing thing to me like yeah. the, it seems like a very promising like what you're describing there reminds me of um scott mcleod's second comic book on comics uh, reinventing comics which didn't really yeah. take off but like there was a lot of stuff about when if you were doing online comics and you weren't bound by a page that you could just go panel to panel like across like you know like just a, there was no bound shape to it you can just go forever going for the the differences between panel and panel which is how time is measured and how stories are told and i don't know i i just hope someone takes up you guys' uh, yeah, aesthetic on yeah. that yeah yeah well we did you know in life of pi there were some kind of similar things there was there was one place in life of pi where we're kind of you know the beginning part of life of pi is we're cutting back and forth between adult pi and, uh, and Rafe Spall's character in Montreal telling stories and the stories that he's telling. So that kind of sets you up for doing things that are kind of fanciful. And there's one place where I would had a wide shot of this temple at night with a whole bunch of candles in the water and it's a big, beautiful shot. And I had to cut to a wide shot of looking across this valley during the day. And you know, cutting from a big wide shot to a big wide shot is not easy. And you know, once you, I, I had this ang of voice of ang in my head. I was trying something else and I didn't like it. And then I had this heard vo ang's voice in my head. Just anything you can think of. And mm. so, this one I had to go tell my assistant. Okay, so we're looking at this temple at night. <clears throat> Let's, you know, have a starry sky, and now tilt up, tilt up, and faster and faster as we go up. So the camera goes straight overhead and back down. And, and twist as you come back down. So as you come back down, the, the, you know, we're not upside down and we're coming down. And as we go over the top, it goes from night to day. And then, and then as we come down, we're in this other scene as if we tilt down into it. And once you start thinking, oh, I'm allowed to do that. Um, you know, it's a, it's a great transition in Life of Pi. And my assistant mocked it up and then we wound up executing it for the movie. He spent wow. probably two days on it. I was gonna say that's an intensive mock-up. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's he's very good. It's Mike Fay. I mean, you've worked with Angley your entire career. Obviously, like it just your your collaboration sounds so tight. Like it's like just this is the thing editors dream of. Like being able to like do you do second unit directing or anything, or or is it just pre-production stuff? Yeah, no, I did some um, second unit directing on uh, on Hulk. Actually, that that frog scene, I shot all the, the all the monitor stuff and a bunch of the equipment at the beginning where she's getting everything ready. Uh, mm -hmm. I did all that uh, on Life of Pi. I kind of sort of directed some of the second unit 
uh, you know, there was an insert unit on the on the lifeboat, and uh, I was there in Taiwan for a bunch of it. And sometimes, if you know, if just you're the guy who knows exactly what you need. So, are you on set a lot? Not usually. Okay. Um, you know, in Life of Pi, I mean, usually like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that was a hundred and twenty nine day shoot. Jesus. In China, I was in New York. He and Ang and I talked twice during the entire shoot. Jesus. Um, yeah. And at, at, at sometimes I was getting footage a month after they shot it. What was what was your response whenever that was going to be his next movie? That was after um, Ride of the Devil, right? No, that was after yes, sorry, that was after Ride of the Devil. Um you know, I kept getting drafts to it, but the drafts that I got that the scripts that I got were, um, you know, it was written in Mandarin and then translated into English by a native Mandarin speaker, which is not how you're supposed to do translations. And I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Okay. Um, I, it just was seemed nonsensical. None of, it, none of it made any sense at all. And at one point I read a draft and then a few weeks later I read another draft and they were quite different. And I sent in notes on both. And then I found out they were from the same Chinese script, just with two different translators. Different and that's when I just said, okay, I, I give up. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll just trust Yang. Um, you know, and if, if it hadn't been Yang doing it, it's not the kind of film I would have ever gotten hired to edit. I mean, to, to do a martial arts film. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really surprising movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, skipping forward to, um, the high frame rate, um, you've been involved in some of the like very pioneering films besides the Hobbit movies ongoing at a high frame rate. And you guys went way, way beyond there. Like, um, uh, was, uh, was Billy Lynn's halftime walk. Was that 120 or it's 60. Yeah. There's, it, it doesn't, <clears throat> it doesn't make any sense to shoot anywhere between 24 and 120. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll explain that a little better in a minute. Um, Please. You know, if you, if you shoot at 48, it's that's enough different to look weird and not enough different to solve the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So let me back up a little bit in 24, when you shoot in 24, um, you know, and that's what we're all used to and it's great, but there are two limitations. One is if you're shooting with a 180 degree shutter, that means your shutter speed is a 48th of a second. And there's motion blur that comes with that. And, and also you, there's a certain amount of strobing, you know, you're, you're exposing half the, half the time and the other half you're not, right. You can, you can cut down on motion blur by shutting down, by shortening the uh, exposure. Um, but then that makes the, the gaps and what's missing in the movement um, more noticeable. So you you're kind of balancing strobing versus motion blur and you know, great artists have been doing this for a long time and it's what we're used to. But there are certain like speeds of pans that everyone knows to avoid because you know, it'll start strobing. Uh, there are certain speeds where you can't roll your credits because it'll strobe in, in a way that's un annoying. 3D brings new issues. In 3D, strobing is more annoying than it is in 2D. And so to compensate for that, when you shoot in 3D, most at 24, most DPs will open up the shutter angle to close to 300 degrees. Okay. But that adds more motion blur. It makes the strobing more manageable, but it adds more motion blur. And there was a scene in Life of Pi, several scenes, but one in particular in Life of Pi where 
he's on a raft bobbing up and down in the ocean in a medium shot and you can't see his face. You know, he's acting, but he's kind of lost in motion blur. And we did some artificial stuff to, you know, we, we replaced his eyes to try, try to just make him not disappear in this mess of blur. And the film that I wanted to do next involved boxers. And just thinking the way, the way boxers move in the ring, not movie boxers, but real boxers. There's a lot of bobbing and weaving and we were afraid the performance would just get lost. So we did a bunch of tests at higher frame rate. This is would and, be for 3D in the boxing movie? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And we found that, you know, if, if a boxer is coming in toward you, toward the camera uh, at 24, it's a lot of exciting blur. And if he's coming in toward you, bobbing and weaving, and you're shooting at 60, you can see what he's thinking. It's a totally different experience. Hmm. And so uh, we figured, okay, we should shoot this at 60. Because theaters can't, couldn't go higher than 60 anyway. I've only seen Gemini Man in 60. Yeah. Um, but what we'd, we we thought about it, if you're doing 60 and you have to deliver a 24, then that's a, that's a problem because 60 is 24 times two and a half. Um, so how do you make a 24? Uh, you know, there are ways using optical flow, but it's expensive and glitchy and, and complicated. But if you shoot at 120, that's 60 times two, it's 24 times five. And if you shoot with 180 degree, or with a 360 degree shutter, which you can do with digital cameras, then you can, you've recorded everything and you can combine frames in such a way that you can have a huge amount of control over, over what kind of, you know, if to, to make the 60, for example, you could just show every other frame. And that would look exactly like you shot at 60 with a 180 degree shutter, because it was okay. exactly the same. But that has some strobing in it. If you watch 120 projected at 120, there's no strobing whatsoever. There's it's it's kind of uncanny. It does not look like film. It looks like something else. Um, and you can if you, sh you there are ways that you can combine. The, the frames, the 120 frames to make a 60 that make it look better than if you shot it at 60. And you can make a 24 look better than if you shot it at 24. And you can, you have control over different parts of the frame, different parts of the shot. You know, if you shoot at 120, you can do all kinds of, you can, you have a lot more control over what it's going to look like when you come down to 60 and 24. But then you can project at 120. Most, I mean, theatrical, you need two projectors. But some theaters can do that. Dolby, Dolby theaters can do that. Dolby Vision theaters, and um, you know it's amazing. But again, it's it's not a, a look that people are used to, and so it's you know audience acceptance is a, is a, a funny thing. You know, when HD first came in, people didn't like it, but then they saw sports in HD and they loved it, and then that that got them used to it. And then they now you never show anything in SD because it looks like garbage. You think this is going to still catch on and, and people are still going to go in this direction? I don't know. I think there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of interest, technical interest, and the equipment is getting more and more capable. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, you need, what you need is a really good movie at mm -hmm. 120, you know, uh, something that's 
that delivers not just something interesting technically, but a great story. Um, and we'll see how the audience responds. But there is there is a lot of interest in it. Um, but it's it's a different look. And what what we thought in uh, when we were doing Billy Lynn is we thought we would go back and forth between what looks normal and what looks um, high frame rate sort of enhanced. And uh, you know we have the ability to do that in, in in editorial in post. We had our own lab. What we discovered is you start it looking like twenty four and it looks like twenty four looks normal. Then you jump up to high frame rate, you gotta jump up to 60 and it looks weird. It takes you out of the movie for a minute. And then you get used to it, you know, after five, 10 minutes, you get used to it. And then you go back down to 24 and 24 doesn't look normal anymore. anymore. It looks terrible. Hmm. Um, and every time we switched, it took you out of the movie. And so we, what we thought we were gonna do this interesting thing of, of going back and forth, it turns out it doesn't really work very well. You know, you would think in some cases, like a film like Ready Player One, for example, where we're going in and out of the right. real world and the computer world, you know, maybe there it would make sense to do all the inside the computer at at a high frame rate at 60, say, and do outside at 24. But there's no justification for it in Billy Lynn, and we just, just seem, seem weird. So we, it, we stayed with some variation, but it's much more subtle. Uh, we stayed at high frame rate for the whole thing, but then it didn't really get released that way. Wow. Um, I remember in Gemini Man really thinking that um, location work. I mean, like I think I read that you guys had to redo or the uh, on set they had to redo um, makeup in a different way just because you were seeing stuff in a detailed. Like yeah, it's a it's like a hundred years of sophistication and filmmaking and figure out how to make things work with twenty four frames. Suddenly you. It's like you with the Avid book, uh, having to re read Avid for the first time. It's it's a totally new. Yeah, you could see. I mean, they 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 experienced a bit of that in the first Hobbit movie. It's, yeah, it, it, the it, sets it in the first Hobbit movie were yeah. Were rough. It, the sets would have been perfectly fine normally, but in this context, it looked like a bunch of guys on a set wearing costumes around styrofoam. Um, yeah, so you had to you had to step things up, and we had to you know change the approach to makeup a bit because um the normal movie makeup didn't hold up um you can see it so yeah there were a lot of things that had to had to be done differently i remember thinking like um a lot of natural light and a lot of uh, on or uh, on location stuff would look really really great at the high frame rate um yeah there's you... some big big wide shots in budapest uh and in billy lynn some big wide shots uh that were supposed to be set in iraq that we shot in Mar shot in morocco they're just stunning, and you can see forever in in bright sunshine, and, it's, and especially you know in three D, four K at one twenty, it's th those shots you just look at them all day. Uh, I guess the next movie I was going to ask you about was Gosford Park. Going back into what we were talking about earlier with the sound editing, and I mean, I just how working with Altman that's got to be that's about to be. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller was one of the films that really got me going. Oh. This That's is, a favorite of mine. This is, this is really interesting. That's a great movie. And then, yeah. you know, 20 years later to get a call from Robert Altman that he wants me to come cut a movie for him, you know, what a thrill. And, uh, you know, it was a really interesting script. But, um, you know, when you first interview, the thing you talk about is the script because that's, you know, that's kind of where you start. You talk about process, but you also talk about the script. And I said, I'd, I do have a couple of, 
couple of notes on the scripts, a couple of things. And he said, oh, okay. And I said one and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I see your point. And then I said another and he said, oh, I don't think I agree with you on that one. And then I started on another one. And he said, you know what? Don't worry about the script. And I just went, what? Uh, I had never. Had I was going to say, it sounds like way. Altman would tell you not to worry about the script. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the way he was. He, um, you know, there was a script, but a, a gr- it changed a great deal during the shoot. Uh, he's, he's the kind of director where, and similar in a way to, to Jonathan Demme, where everybody, you know, everybody he hires, they bring their own thing and he kind of directs everybody to be working in the same way, but he doesn't, doesn't just tell everybody what to do and, and take over. And he didn't, didn't tell me what to do at all. Um, the coverage was very weird on that movie. You know, it was a huge cast of very big actors. And, um, you know, sometimes you you would have, you know, you're, they're in this house preparing things and you see an extra walk by in the background carrying a tray, but it's Sir Derek Jacobi. And that's all he did in the scene was walk by in the background carrying a tray. Um, How multi-camera would he have been? Uh, they shot the whole thing with two. They shot the whole thing with two cameras. I don't think they ever shot. Uh, no. There were a couple of scenes they only shot with a single camera, but almost always two. Well, I, mean, and never three. I would imagine more, so that's that's nice. Only two. No, the way they shot it was very weird that, you know, the sort of a typical early filmmaker thing where you, you can get lost is a complicated table scene where people are, you know, talking talking uh, with a, establish a whole bunch of different eye lines around the table. And normally a big scene with a lot, you know, a four-page scene of dialogue of people, a bunch of people sitting around a table, that'd be a couple of days of shooting and they'd knock it out in three hours. And the way they would do it is they would just set up the two cameras on one side of the table and they would dolly back and forth and get whatever they get, shoot three takes, move in a little tighter, do it again, go around to the other side, do it again, you're done. And English, English crews are real sticklers about coverage and they were having aneurysms. Because nobody had ever, you know, and apparently it was a big joke on set is what, let's see what the editor is going to do with that. Um, And it was a challenge. You know, everything I have, I mean, every editor has a whole process that they develop uh, about how to handle, how to, you know, turn an hour of dailies into a one minute scene. And my whole process didn't work on this footage. I had to kind of come up with something new. Um, But there wasn't a lot of footage. How long, how long was the edit on that? Um, let's see. They shot April, May, June. We finished in October. So it was quick. I mean, we locked picture in nine weeks. I'm, the, 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 see, I, I've had this conversation recently more on doc stuff about like the real, like, I'm curious what your process is, but a lot of the time, whenever you're, you're, you're guessing out time, is just like, I need time to look at the dailies and figure out what's going on or what's what. Yeah, and if you uh, shoot a lot, which is great, like I need time to figure that out. Yeah, um, you know, it's while they're shooting, it's a good idea if you can to try to keep up, you know, keep up with production. And you know, some days it's easy. Some days they can they'll shoot all day, and I can be done in an hour. But other days, you know, they'll shoot for six hours, and it'll take me two days to cut. Just depends on on the nature of the footage. Um, but you know, Gosford Park, there was not a whole lot of footage. 
And it was very complicated for me while they were shooting, but I was in New York and they were in London and I, was, I wasn't really, I wasn't really communicating with them. And I was sending, I was sending Bob cuts. You know, I, I would always send, make, make tapes. At that time it was tapes and I narrate them and send them and just to make sure that, you know, that just to let him be confident that he was getting what he needed. But I never got, didn't get any notes back about what to do or anything like that, which I've never gotten notes from Ang either. Um, or from Jonathan Demi for that matter. Um, you know, as long as they're, the director's confident that they got what they needed, they should be worrying about what they're shooting tomorrow, not what they shot yesterday. Cause as long as you're keeping changed. up. Yeah. Uh, as long as they think they got it, then there's nothing more that needs to be said. We can do that later. But, uh, so it was a very complicated, uh, you know, first pass doing the assembly. And I did, did a lot of versions of everything because every scene was sort of a house of cards because the, you know, if I, if I just want to switch from take three to take seven, well, in take seven, the camera was someplace different from where it was in take three. So I, so the cut doesn't work anymore. So if you like change one thing, you have to change everything. So I would do, you know, usually I cut two or three versions of every scene, but in the, on that film, it was, it was usually more than that. Um, and then I, you know, then I, I build an assembly. But by the time we showed the assembly, it was really good. It mm. was, uh, you know, it was too long. It was about three fifteen. But, uh, but except for that, you know, except for getting the time down, uh, it the the assembly played really well. And mostly what Altman did. And again, we we locked picture in nine weeks. Um, we were. I never saw more than maybe four hours a day. And you, often it was much less than that. He would come down the hall. We were set up in a the hotel where he had he had his office there and, and we were in a little suite down the hall. And he'd come down and say, you know, those those four scenes where people were dressing for dinner, cut them up and mix the pieces together. And then he'd leave. That was that was the way he directed me on that. And I'd, I'd say, oh, okay. And that would keep me busy for a while. And I was like, oh, so now we have the dressing for dinner montage instead of the four scenes. And it's like, oh, that was a good idea. Um, but yeah, I've, yeah, I've had this conversation with other editors about the, the, there's certain editors who, I think most editors like to be left alone. There's a lot of editors that like are okay with like couch behind me, the directors in the couch behind me tell me. And that sounds kind of heavenly to me, so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, the great thing about that film was it was never broken. We never had to try to fix it. You know, mm. that were, it was just a matter of getting the time down and making it, you know, bring out the best in all the performances and finding all the, the good pieces, finding the balance between the drama and the humor. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a fun, really enjoyable film. I think Gosser Park's also going to be a transition into the the movie we're supposed to be talking about for this episode, 50 Minutes In. Um, the, Rachel Getting Married is one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years. It is. what what So how was the process? How did you first get involved with Demi? Did you get a script first? Was Demi involved when it came on? Or Oh, yeah. He, um, 
you know, I had no, I had met Jonathan a number of years earlier. Um, you know, some sound people I know had, had always been telling me, oh, you should, you should meet Jonathan Demi. I think you guys will get really, will really get along well. And then I actually ran into him uh, in a hotel. We were, we were getting ready to go to a screening uh, at the Cannes Film Festival of In the Mood for Love. And I was waiting for Aang to come down oh, nice. uh, to get dressed. And I looked over across the lobby and there was Jonathan Demi. So I went over and introduced myself and he says, oh yeah, I heard about you. you everybody's, these sound guys have all been telling me I should meet you. Um, and he was a huge fan of Ride with the Devil. In fact, okay. he kind of taught, there was a, a chase scene in that that he he taught at the Jacob Burns Film Center up in Westchester County. He did a class on. So, oh, that's cool. so yeah, yeah we, that was great. So he called me. Um, again, this is a script that you read it, seemed very loose. Uh, and, you know, I went, I actually went on set the first day. I was just excited to be working with Jonathan and it seemed like an interesting, interesting project. Uh, I went on set the first day and both the script supervisor and the uh, sound mixer took me aside and said, you know, it was at lunchtime. And uh, they both said, I, I, I don't know how to work this way. I don't know what you're going to do. Uh, it's it, it's it, it's completely out of control. And the film that I had done before that was Lost Caution for Ang Lee, which is okay. possibly possibly his best film. But it's, uh, it's a very intense, very tightly controlled film. And so then to go from that to Rachel Getting Married, which is the opposite and and Jonathan was you know such a big exuberant person and and it's very different from Ang. I love them both, but but different. you know it's the whole experience was really different and wonderful. And again, that footage it was good that I had done Gosford Park because that kind of taught me a new way of of editing. Because Rachel getting married was Gosford Park on steroids. Um, the way they shot it was very very loose and the script was changing all the time back back going to your um your first first few credits um were you doing any docs at this point was that a muscle you felt like you had that helped yeah. on this yes very much i had done a lot of documentary work i'd done some stuff for bill moyers um I did, there was another documentary company so before i really before pushing hands probably the majority of, my, of what i had done was in docs Okay. So yeah, that was extremely helpful because that's how they 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 shot Rachel getting married in in to a large extent like a doc. The crazier thing about whenever I I just I was finishing watching the commentary before we started up and um the live music that seems like the crazier aspect to it like having to separate your tracks from the live music or whenever they bleed over. Yeah, there were places where we you know were shooting setups. Um, of people talking and the, the setup isn't going to go into the other room. It isn't going to go outside, but there were people in the backyard playing instruments because that was going to be a part of the scene later. And I was like, really? You couldn't have had, you couldn't have had them not play the instruments. Just for, and just that, for a few takes, just for a few takes. Don't yeah, play. Maybe yeah. one, just give your mood yeah. and stop after the one. Yeah. It created, it was interesting. It created probably an interesting atmosphere for the actors. And there were certain wonderful things that came out of that, but there were some technical complications too. But we did, we did very little ADR. There were maybe a couple places where we changed a few lines. Jeez, really? Because, I, I, because wow. we hadn't, but yeah, it was, that one was complicated and it was, um, 
you know, Jonathan really wanted to keep the spontaneity of the performances. Did, did they help you with like wild lines or anything? Not much. <laughs> Not much. Okay. But, you know, every, everybody was wearing a microphone, so I could pull things. Okay. Uh, but no, uh, it was an interesting technical challenge. Maybe a little more challenging than it needed to be. You guys shot for 33 days? Yeah. Were you on set for yeah. most of that? No, I was on set very little. Um, they were okay. shooting in Stanford, Connecticut. No, they, they shot, you know, they shot a normal amount of footage for a film, you know, about a hundred hours, but a hundred hours in 33 days is a lot. Um, and so I, I, and I wanted to try to keep up. And so um, I, I didn't really have time to go on set because if I'm on set, I'm not, I'm not working. Um, you know, I was on set some, uh, you know, there's a reason to be on set like on Life of Pi, there were a bunch of places where I had to be on set. And Gemini Man, there were some places where I had to be on set. But those are for specific reasons. Um, okay. You know, often in reshoots, I'll be on set actually cutting stuff in to make sure everything works. But um, no, generally speaking, if I'm on set, um, it means I'm not working. And you, and you said you weren't getting any notes when you're assembling on this. You're, he was just no. trying to get, his, get through his days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he yeah and he didn't want to give me notes you know they were shooting stuff and he was happy with what i was sending him and again at the end of every day i would send him one or two or three versions well two or three or four versions of everything and um he had never seen that before so he got quite a kick out of it hmm. and uh you know and then you know and then when we started working together i had all these <clears throat> all these different versions i mean to make the assembly I had to. I have to go back, sift through all those old versions, and decide what I want to put in the assembly. Whether it's one of those versions, or more often some combination, and then something new. Um, but I would save all those things, and so he could refer back to them. Or if there were things that I, you know, I made this decision, but that decision was good too, I would show that to him and and save all of those. Uh, but yeah, so once we started working together, then. You know, the first kind of the first thing that happened, there were a bunch of scenes where Anne Hathaway's, Anne Hathaway's character and the uh, the actor who's playing the best man, you know, something, some big thing would happen, big dramatic thing. And then there'd be a scene where the two of them would talk about what happened. And then there's, you know, some other things would happen. And then the two of them would sit and talk about what happened. And we, the first thing we did was cut all of those scenes out. Um, okay. We don't, we don't need to see them rehashing what we already went over and tell them what it, Tell us what it means to them. You you, know, you want to do that very sparingly, if ever, in a movie. How long? And how long was your assembly? A bunch of those are, uh, assembly on Rachel getting married was about two fifty something, I think. Okay. And I mean, with with those scenes gone. Yeah, um, yeah, it it came down quite a bit. You know, some of the there were a bunch of montage kind of scenes. You know, that's an interesting thing. The like the uh, the wedding rehearsal. The the wedding rehearsal was just a whole bunch of performances, people getting up on stage and performing. The way they shot that was they just did the whole thing with five cameras. You know, two of the cameras were our professional cameras by our camera operators, and then three of the cameras were held by guests so they could be in the shots. And but I could use that footage too. And they just did it. They just did the whole thing through. And then went back and picked up just the ending, and that was it. 
they, it was not, they didn't shoot a whole, but they didn't shoot it in pieces. They didn't shoot it in takes. It was a, a, an hour long take. And then the rehearsal dinner right after that, same thing. They just shot it through once. It's a 45 minute take with five cameras. Um, and then they went and picked up this one little piece, but they, they shot it like a documentary. They didn't wanna, they didn't go back and get, get coverage. The coverage all had to be done the first time. I guess I'm just kind of amazed that you caught up, catch you caught up with production on that. That just blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit behind at times, but Jonathan Jonathan was happy. You know, the last day of shooting was the scene where they're loading the dishwasher, mm. um, and you know, I was a little behind. I had a lot of I had some catching up to do, and um, I thought uh, I looked at that and it was a uh, you know three quarters of a page, and I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. And then I got the footage and like, oh, no, yeah. no, this is this is a meal. Um, that took a while. So I think I think between when they finished shooting and when we actually screened the assembly was probably a week and a half because uh, I, I just needed time to get the whole thing together. Because, you know, not only am I keeping up with the new footage, I'm going back and recutting the old footage and doing sound work and, you know, music, getting the music sorted out as much as we could. Um, Another example of a, a scene, there's a, a couple of Narcotics Anonymous meetings. There are mm. two of them. And both of those were shot all the way through once, and that's it. The, and the actors, you know, each of the actors who gets up and tells a story, they had prepared their own thing, but nobody else knew what anybody else was going to say. None of that was scripted. None of that was in the script. So, um, and it wasn't clear what order people were going to go in. So they just ran it like, you know, they started they started rolling the cameras, three cameras in this case, and people started walking in. They did the whole meeting and then they left, you know, got went and had coffee and donuts. And then eventually they stopped the cameras. And that's how that scene was shot. And the second one of those where uh, Anne Hathaway tells her story, they shot the same way. All that's in the movie is a close up of her, a couple of angles because I had to, had to cut it a bit. All that's, that's all that's in the movie, but they shot the whole meeting. And again, the other actors had their things to say and she, you know, she had her thing prepared and that was scripted, uh, but she waited until she felt the moment was right and nobody knew when she was gonna do it. And then she did her thing and she did it once and that was that. And that's what went in the movie. See, one of the things I love most about this movie is, you know, when a movie really works, it's it's this thing of details always being right. And, you know, it's a really hard thing. It's something that like to look effortless it seems to be need a lot of editing, but I got the feeling how much how much of um performance shaping was involved in what you were cutting? Quite a bit. Okay. Uh, quite a bit. I mean, the, you know, when, when actors are free to ad lib that way, there's a lot of, you get a lot of variety mm -hmm. and, um, you know, trying to, and Jonathan encouraged that, but it, it means sometimes it is complicated putting together a, let alone a, the best performance, but also just a coherent performance sometimes mm -hmm. to make it seem like the person is, you know, consistent enough through the whole scene. Um, but the, the actors, you know, some actors respond to that kind of environment really well and some less so, but the, most of these actors were quite good at that. And um, there's some, 
mean, there's some spectacularly bad editing in that in that movie. I mean, bad in the in the classical sense. You know, I was listening to the commentary, and you were you were talking about this on the commentary, and uh, I know the one cut you pointed out is a kitchen cut where there was a uh, in in both uh, the producer and Janine LeMay, the uh, screenwriter, both like, no, it's fine. I have to say, I sided with them because I remember thinking yeah. like, yeah, there's a line jump on there, but I was part of like, it looks. Fine. I didn't notice well, it until you said anything. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, it sounds perfect. But if you actually look at the positions of the actors, yeah. I, after you Bill pointed Irwin it out, is, I was like, yes, they're different. They're in different spots. Yes. After you pointed it out, the completely opposite direction. There's a in the dishwasher scene. There's a jump cut. Um, it doesn't sound like a jump cut, but it, you know, uh, the Tunde Arabempe, the the groom, his position just cuts from one shot to another. It's the same mm-hmm. setup, but he just moves. The camera moves, but the sound plays straight through. You wouldn't do a cut like that in Sense of Sensibility, but in a film like Rachel Getting Married, it's fine. I mean, in fact, I, it's good. It's a it's a good sort of energetic cut, I think. I mean, to each movie its own aesthetic, but at the same time, watching Rachel Getting Married again, I just like why can't more movies be like that? Like, there's so yeah. much life and great performances in this movie that, like, if if continuity is what robs us from this and other movies, damn continuity, you know? Yeah. There was a, a another kind of weird cut. Think of going back to uh, Gosford Park. There was a scene where you know a number of the below stairs staff are in a room talking, and because the camera's doing something different every time, it's panning back and forth essentially between Clive Owen and Alan Bates. And the way I had to cut the scene is, at one point we cut to Alan Bates and pan over to Clive Owen, and then cut to Alan Bates and pan over to Clive Owen and then cut to Alan Bates, and then pan over to Clive Owen. And Altman thought three times was too many. And we did it so what's in the movie is twice, but okay. I, I was I was very happy that I had- uh, You got the two in? Robert Altman, yeah. Well, just that, you know, I, I, I found out where the limit was. Because um, <laughs> again, there's some there's some peculiar editing in that movie, but you know, you, you, you get away with it because of the aesthetic of the movie. I think one of the big reasons I want to talk about this movie, uh, one of my favorite, I, I mentioned it being a favorite movie the last 20 years, but really the scene that kills me every time, like even watching the commentary, I kind of cried a little, like I cry every time I see this scene is the um, unknown legend, uh, the the wedding vows. Whenever Tunde Bepe says, uh, sings the Neil Young song. That, yeah. I mean, I, I first saw this movie, I was still a, a theater projectionist and I was working in Austin and we got... Um, we got the press screening. We would get press screenings, and I remember I, I would watch all these great movies with press screens like that, especially right after something like I think you guys debuted in North America at Toronto for the for yeah, Rachel Getting so. Married. Yeah, I think it would have so. been right after that, and um, maybe it was for Austin Film Festival. We used to get the hand, uh, holdovers from Toronto, and so I'm just watching this in a empty theater at 3 a.m. and just bawling seeing that scene, and it's just. <laughs> There's a reason I think this is one of Jonathan Demme's best movies, just because like I feel like Jonathan Demme. We've done. I was starting to think about. It, we've technically done two other episodes on Jonathan Demme movies. We did. Um, we did a mo- uh, episode on Swing Shift, the director's cut of that. We did um, a movie he produced called Miami Blues. But every Jonathan Demme movie has so much personality and so much life in it. And 
that sequence, the wedding, all the stuff just is the one that's just like pushes it more than anything else. It's not abrasive. It's not annoying. It's not candy coated either because there's so much conflict in this movie, but I don't know that, that the, yeah. the wedding, ba- the song just kills me every time. Yeah. And it just feels, it feels right for the character and it feels really real. And, and, um, Rachel, uh, Rosemary DeWitt's response to it is so good. You know, it, that pulls you into it too. She was wonderful in that movie. Um, good reaction. Yeah. The, it's just, the, uh, actor work. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, you just, that's, that's one of the big things you do as an editor is, you know, when I saw those dailies and he started singing, I had no idea who was going to do that. The script didn't say it. And, um, really? you know, it got me. Yeah. It, it got me. And I said, okay, I trust that emotion that I just felt was genuine. So I'm going to keep that. No, even after I've seen the movie 70 times and get bored with it, I'm going to remember how I felt the first time because right. the audience is going to be seeing it the first time. Um, you know, that's a real danger sometimes is editing is, is you can get bored with where you are and yeah. start throwing away things that are, that work well. And, yeah. and, you know, that's one reason why it's always helpful to keep showing it to an audience. Yeah. Um, I know I, I, I saw the, um, behind the scenes on the Blu-ray, there was a, a theater screening Q and A that you were at and Jonathan Demi said at one point that you were just putting on stuff that he normally wouldn't have put in, especially in the wedding. <laughs> and he was happy with that. And you were like, I'd want to see, I'd pay for more of this. Yeah, it was, you know, the wedding, you know, wedding guests and the performances uh, after the wedding and people dancing and stuff. We got lots and lots of footage of that. And so it's a question of how much, you know, how much of that do you put in? Uh, it's not, a lot of it is not necessary for the storytelling, but it kind of puts you in the mood. It's indulgent in a good way. I mean, you have in to find way. where the line is between indulgent in a good way and indulgent not in a good way. Um right. And in fact, at one point we had just about locked picture and uh, then we kind of went back and paired a couple more things out because they showed it to it. We showed it to a new audience and it felt, it did feel a little bit long, you know, stuff mm-hmm. that had always felt good started to feel a little long. So I went back and into the people okay. dancing in the, after the wedding and cut a, a few more shots out. Um, but yeah, finding those kinds of what feels like real emotions and, you know, great moments. I mean, there's a moment, there's a scene, terrific scene, maybe my favorite scene in the movie, where they come back from the rehearsal dinner and they start in the kitchen and the girls start bickering and then this they go the into the living room. Scene. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the shot I'm talking about is this watermelon, uh, one of the watermelon shots where the girls are really going at it in the kitchen and we cut and there somebody says something that kind of stops the conversation and we cut over to you know, the best man and the the bridesmaid. And the best man is just kind of sitting there eating some watermelon, looking, you know, just watching. He's not he's not scripted as doing anything in this scene, but he was just there and present in a way that was so interesting. Um, and in that, you know, the what they that was a 10 minute scene and they shot it in 10 minute takes. Uh the cameras just went different ways each time. But um, you know, the actors didn't know when they were on camera. It's not like they were ever saving it for their their close-up so he was just there and you know he would do there's this moment where he's just kind of looking back and forth eating watermelon and i thought that's that just made the scene you know it's obviously there's lots of other good stuff in the scene too but it's like moments like that are are wonderful 
in the commentary, you say, um, I think Rosemary DeWitt has the big line where she reveals she's pregnant. Um, yeah. You said that was a first take. Yeah. I, I, if I said it, I'm sure it's true. <sighs> no, it's just first take for that delivery and just yeah, the shape of, the shape of that scene. Um, yeah. And the way the energy in the scene changes when she says that, it's, you know, it's this kind of tense thing, but you see this family has bickered a lot before because, you know, it's not like everybody else in the room is sitting there embarrassed and horrified you know they've all seen some seen some stuff before so yeah uh, and then she says she's pregnant and everything changes and 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 hathaway's to reaction to that is so wonderful um and you know it wasn't an everything but... the commentary was better than i thought yeah. I, I i hadn't listened to it in there and for a movie i've seen that many times there's a lot of insight that i hadn't picked up on what was the um was there a lot of was there any story shaping done or was like what kind of did you have to move stuff around it was mostly just bringing oh, yeah. it down or okay no we we moved stuff around what kind of stuff moved around oh let's see you know i, I don't think i have a good answer to that question i i, do, okay. I, I remember that we shuffle things but it, i mean that's normal so it's not like it was yeah. particularly noteworthy that you shuffle things around it's it's rare that you don't so um, right. You know, sometimes right. you take you you know you'll have two scenes, and you, you, a couple of scenes, and you take out the scene that's in between them, and then you put them together now, and it doesn't work very well. So you have to kind of move one of them. But uh, I don't remember any specific instances of that. I just know that we fiddled around with the scene order as as you usually do. You only uh, you worked with Jonathan Demi one more time after this. Yeah, on a very little film. Uh, it's called A Master Builder. It's an okay. adaptation of the Ibsen play with Wally Shawn and Andre Gregory. Wonderful, wonderful little film. I did that right after Life of Pi. In fact, I assembled it while we were finishing Life of Pi. Um, I was in Los Angeles, and I had all the dailies and so nights and weekends. I was, oh, I was damn. doing, I was doing that. Well, okay. I assembled, I assembled Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon nights and weekends while I was working sixty hours a week on a TV series. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a busy fall. Uh, but yeah, this other film, it was a, it was an adaptation of a play. They had been workshopping it for 14 years, I think, um, shot it in seven days. I thought it was going to be really easy. It was not, it was turned out to be very complicated, but I, you know, I just wanted the opportunity to work with Jonathan again after Life right. of Pi, which was a great, a great job, great film, but long and grueling. And it just seemed like a, a pleasant thing to do um, mm. to, to have the chance to work with Jonathan again. Cause I, I, I really enjoyed working with him. Rachel getting married in my mind, it's a comedy because okay. we had so much, because we had so much fun making it, you know, there's always, there's the film itself. And then there's the experience of making the film right. and you can make a lousy film, but have it be a good experience and vice versa. Sometimes a great film is a terrible experience. Um, you know, Rachel getting married was was a really fun experience. I had a great crew we were, where we were working. We had a lot of other people with us. Jonathan's a blast. Jonathan was a blast. And um, I just, you know, in my mind, it was just a really pleasant, enjoyable experience. And especially coming after Lost Caution, which was great, but so emotional, but a different, you know, intense, tightly controlled, you know, pressure cooker and then to go from that to rich getting married was was a real pleasure and then so a few years later when jonathan asked me to do this other thing um 
I was happy to do it. I was originally going to cut Ricky and the Flash for him, which is I was is about to ask you did. about Ricky and the Flash. Yeah, but I was on Unbroken, Angelina Jolie's film, and that went longer. And eventually, it was going to be too big an overlap, and so I had to I had to back out. I I don't think enough people like Ricky and the Flash either. But one of the things that that re, that relates to um, Rachel getting married is I think I think Rachel getting married is just one of the best movies I've ever seen about forgiveness. And structurally, it's just weird. It's it's it's, it's a great movie where there's just the movie doesn't end with the type of blowouts that you would normally expect a family drama to have where there's a catharsis where someone makes a point where everyone like i yeah. think there's a, a in hathaway says at one point in an interview that like whoever wins the argument is the last person that speaks and then the, the end of the movie is just about everyone acknowledging kind of silently it doesn't seem like there's a lot of dialogue yeah. in the last 20 minutes and ricky and the flash structurally is kind of the same way too where there's a lot of family conflict and then it ends at a uh, concert with meryl streep where her kids have to kind of like come to terms with the mother they love and the mother that loves them back too yeah yeah i mean the great thing about the ending of rachel getting married it's emotional but nobody gives the big emotional speech right it's just you know they said what they needed to say they said what they wanted to say earlier talking isn't the solution to the problem you know it's the emotions that they feel at the wedding that hopefully the audience goes along with them and feels some of those things too and you just see things change without there being an explanation for it. And I think, you know, that's the way life often really is. I think, uh, I think it, it feels very genuine. And um, yeah, that was, you know, you don't, that scene with, you know, the big emotional speech that ties things up, it was, there wasn't in the script. There wasn't, there, there was none. That's not how, that's not how problems get solved in this movie or usually not in the real world either. Yeah. I mean, uh, Rachel getting married ends with a wedding. Uh, Ricky and the Flash ends with their mother singing a song to them. And it's just yeah. such a nonverbal way of... I've been thinking a lot lately and rewatching Rachel been getting married kind of thought about this. Like the, If you go back to the basic of the Aristotle idea of dramatics and conflict and how conflict is what supposedly everyone's interested in watching, I think when it comes to the family drama, conflict is so natural. Like, And what's interesting about a movie like this is it just feels more like a real family. It just feels like like the fights are natural, but the the way they resolve feels like your normal family. You're never going to get your family to like say they have a speech and say they were right or you were right. You know, it's just at the end yeah. of the day, like yeah. you're still the family's there. Yeah, yeah. It felt it all felt very authentic. I thought you know Bill Irwin has some. He plays the father. It just has some wonderful moments where you know he's very conflicted. I mean, the, his whole past with the way he's dealt with his daughter, he hasn't always done everything right. And, um, you know, his other daughter calls him out on it. And I, I thought he was just wonderful in that movie. Um, you know, so, so just authentic and, 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 and interesting, you know, he's not just there. He's, Bill Irwin's always, you can always kind of count on him to be, to be, be something interesting. I can't say enough about the performances of the movie. These, these, the, the, the these, they're so detailed. They're so distinct but the details feel right. They feel so right in this movie. Uh, you guys came up with the title in, in editing? I, I yes, saw it was, Dancing with Shiva was on one of the slates. Yeah. Uh, it, we spent quite a while trying to figure out what, what to call the movie because Dancing with Shiva seemed like it was, it was just setting people up for a different kind of movie. Sure. Um, so yeah, so uh, 
Rachel getting married, it's a line that uh, that one of the musicians says in the rehearsal dinner. And he says, and he repeats, Rachel getting married. You know, and, uh, so we thought, oh, uh, Jonathan came up with that. Okay. Um, I, I, I want to ask about um, Jonathan Demme's son is in the movie and his dogs are in the movie. Is um, Yeah. I know my experience with a director, if they have family members in the movie or pets in the family, those are the scenes that are hardest to cut out. I don't know if that was your experience with this. <laughs> I didn't want to cut those scenes out. Well, it works out. Yeah, and the dog was wonderful. The dog was, was the best animal actor I've ever seen. Because, uh, you know, sometimes a, tra- a really well-trained dog, they won't do anything. They'll kind right. of hit their marks, but they won't do anything. Olive, that big poodle. Um, Olive did did things. You know, I was always interesting. She was always, always gave a hundred percent and never, you know, never messed up a shot, but was always happy to be there. It was, it was wonderful. And I, you know, uh, you know, and the, his kids had never had, never had any problem with, with any of those scenes. Well, cool. Um, I think that's, that's all I got. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for being on the podcast and doing this. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, um, this is a pleasure. I love this movie to death. I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, you know, sometimes you you do a movie and you send it out in the world, and you never know um, what people think. And you know, well, especially this wasn't if a huge like hit. you jump back and forth between some bigger movies and this, like the smaller movies, like, like but this one, it, yeah, it's 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 stuck with me over these years. Thanks, man. Great. I'm glad to hear it. Thanks.